Hi, this is Brent Skousen, youngest son of W. Cleon Skousen. Thank you for tuning in today to another lesson taught by W. Cleon Skousen. Today's lecture is number 37 on the Old Testament given in 1973 to his university class. It is unscripted and unedited. The lesson today is 2 Kings chapters 3 through 7, supplemented by Dr. Skousen's book, The 4,000 Years, which can be found online. And if you prefer to listen, all of Dr. Skousen's Old Testament books can now be found on audible.com. Today we cover chapter 15, the ministry of the prophet Elisha. Now sit back and join us in the classroom of W. Cleon Skousen. Enjoy! Good news from the Alamo. We have now covered everything that we need to cover on our jam session so that we can now finish out the semester one chapter and assignment. And I, I pressed it right to the brink, apparently. I had uh, four or five of you um, writing me notes and, and saying that you were getting behind on uh, your other classes and that it was an imposition, which I knew it was. And I just wanted to put in these two weeks so you didn't get it at the last of the semester if we were going to finish the book. You may be interested to know that the Book of, or rather the, the Old Testament courses were never designed to finish the whole Bible, rather to give you a, a sampling of it. But I never felt good about that. And uh, when I took Old Testament, you never got past Genesis. When I first started... Um, first started t uh, teaching uh, the, the Old Testament, they told me, now don't even try to get past Genesis, you can't do it. You, but it gives them a taste of the book, and that's, so that's all they would take. So I just, uh, after I wrote this series, I thought we ought to be able to do it a little more in depth. So we just about finish uh, all the material assigned to the first semester, and some of the students complained that they wished that we'd go a little faster in this book that in their other classes they were reading long assignments frequently and that they were at BYU to get their religion and they wanted to take a little more. And then as some of the, this class suggested, but don't give it to us at the last part. So I was trying to combine them. But anyway, how many of you are not, uh, are a little behind? How many of you are a little behind? Well, that's a good 20% of the class. So we're going to do it one chapter at a time. 18 is next time. And uh, if you'll just uh, catch up now, stay with me, and we'll get nearly all this book finished. And what little we don't, we might lack one chapter or two, uh, depending upon what holidays they throw at us, but uh, we're just about going to finish this one. And you'll have then a speaking acquaintance with the Old Testament. Speaking acquaintance. And in some places you'll have real depth. But you must keep studying it to uh, make it stay with you. You ought to read the four standard works of the church once a year, and then you'll be all right. I spoke at a sacrament meeting here a week ago Sunday, and I reminded the audience that it takes just 1,200 minutes to read the Book of Mormon. Out loud, cover to cover, 1,200 minutes. And if you want to discuss a little bit as you go along, you can take 1,600 minutes, but that's the outside. That's 24 hours of reading time. And uh, I, I serve on the High Council up in Salt Lake, so I had occasion to go back to the same ward uh, that I'm assigned to. And lo and behold, here came people up to tell me that they had read the whole Book of Mormon out loud during the week. You can do it. It's just not that tough. 
And uh, these are mostly professional people, and they just decided, well, look, when you're in school, you think nothing of doing three hours of homework of an evening. So we'll just cut off the TV, and we'll spend three hours of homework. And so the first thing, Brother um, uh, Clemens came up to me, and he said, my wife and I read it out loud from cover to cover, and it's only two minutes a page, just like you said, reading at a comfortable speed. And when you read it like that, you begin to catch it. You can keep it all in your brain simultaneously. And it's a wonderful book. Well, uh, we happen to be under a curse in the church for not reading the book. It's in the 84th section of the Doctrine and Covenants, beginning with the 50th verse. Church has never lifted that curse. It was put on the church in 1832. We've never lifted it. You read it sometime. It's the curse of ignorance. It's the curse of having to sit in Relief Society and priesthood meeting and listen to things that are boring because the teacher didn't read the Book of Mormon and doesn't know his scripture. And neither does the class. And it's the curse of having the teacher teach you false doctrine and not having anybody in the class know their scripture well enough to suggest that there is a better, better answer. And that curse is on the church. We've never lifted it. And you're the generation that I hope will lift it. And if you'll get to reading the standard works of the church once a year, you, you, you'll do it. See, it's only uh, 700 minutes to read the Doctrine and Covenants, cover, cover to cover, 1,200 minutes for the Book of Mormon, a couple of hundred minutes for the Pearl of Great Price, didn't even that much. It just isn't that big a deal. It's a question of sitting down and saying, now I'm going to read it. And you do. <clears throat> Years ago, I, I tried to read the standard works, all the standard works every year. And I, I did it for about 12 years. And then they got me to teaching, and then I had to specialize a little bit and read a lot of extracurricular things to go with it, and then I got off of it a little bit. So now it, it's about every other year now. It takes a little longer. It's about... Uh, <laughs> I, I think it's, it's nearly 60 hours reading time. 60 hours. That's one week of TV watching for lots of people. They, they watch TV around 50 hours a week. Yeah. I know you don't do that, but you, you will notice that if you counted up the time that you are in, involved in spectatoritis, or you're just watching something, just sitting and listening or watching something other than classwork, uh, just uh, spectorating, not X, but just spectorating, uh, it's, you'll, you'll notice a lot of hours put in in front of a TV and soap opera. Well, you need a little relaxation. Everybody should. But 50 hours, man, what you can do with the scripture in 50 hours. Okay. All right, now just a very quick review. Okay. What's that town right there? Capital of the tribe of Judah. Hebron. Hebron. Up here is the city of David. What's that called? What's the capital of David? What's the first capital of the Ten Tribes? And what's the one seven miles north? What's the one over here? What's the name of those mountains right there overlooking uh, Jezreel Valley where Saul was killed? The mountains of Gilboa. What's this mountain right here? Armel. What's that town right there? Nazareth? What's that one right there? Tiberius. <laughs> what's that town right there? Haifa. And what's that town right there? What is it? 
Joppa or modern Tel Aviv. Here's one right there. What's it called? Caesarea. 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 It's good. What's this one called? Right, great. You're the only people that know that. Isn't that marvelous? You say that in priesthood meeting and it'll be called false doctrine. You ask him, haven't you read Brother Nibley's books? That's what it's called. Memphis or Noah or Nephi. It had all those three names. Nephi. And uh, that's pretty good for right now. Um, there's a river right here called... Remember that one by any chance? That's Arnon. It's not Aaron, but Arnon. A-R-N-O-N. There's a river running into Jordan about right there where Jacob wrestled with the angel. What's it called? The river Jabok. 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 Arnon? Jabok. What's the tribe that lives right in here? Moabites. What's the tribe that lives right in here? Ammonites. And the ten tribes came in here, and of course, we have two or three of the tribes settling down over here. Uh, there's a town right here settled by Abraham with a famous well. What's that called? Beersheba. Beersheba. Where's easy on Geber? Everybody's easy on Giver, you know that. <laughs> okay. That's right here at the head of the Aqaba Gulf. We call it Elath today. Sometimes it's Elat, but Elath. And it's right there, easy on Giver. It's right where Lehi went, then he went three, three days further down to Machan. That's where the Valley of Lemuel was, we think. Well, this is a rather exciting person that uh, we're dealing with here in the two chapters that we're trying to catch up with you on. I want to go over them for the sake of those who are a little behind, refresh the memories of the others. <clears throat> because it was quite a thing to be just a young fellow and to have the most respected and dignified uh, representative of God on the whole face of the earth come up to you and put his robe on you that it designates you as his apprentice. And so you follow him and uh, you find 7,000 members of the church that nobody knew about. They're all hidden away. You have to sort of really knock on doors and get them out of the rocks and root them out of the cellars to find where they are. But sure enough, there were a lot. They gathered them together. They started teaching them the um, priesthood pattern. They set up uh, schools of the prophets. And, and then finally it was time for Elijah to depart. And they visited the last uh, two of the schools of the prophets on the way down, one at Bethel and one down at... Uh, What's the name of that town? Jericho. What's between Jericho and the river? Gilgal. 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 Now that's the plain. And, and sometimes they'd build towns down there, the city of the Palms and some of these others, and they called it the city of Gilgal. But it's famous as having been the place where Joshua had the camp for the 12 tribes of Israel when they crossed the River Jordan. After Elisha saw... Um, or rather, when he went with Elijah, he had a special request of Elijah before Elijah departed. And it was a very uh, uh, presumptuous request, really. But he, he just knew that he'd need it if uh, he's going to be left on his own. He didn't think he's the man that Elijah is. So he asked for what? A double portion of the spiritual power of Elijah. That's like having a president of the church say, well, I'm turning the keys over to you now. Anything you want before we depart? Yes, I'd like to be twice as good as you are. That's really something. What would the record rather suggest? Compare the life of one and the life of the other. What would you suggest? In greater or equal quantity? Um, 
I wonder if um, it had reference to the manifestations of the power of the Spirit. Let's see. Um, Let a double portion of thy Spirit be upon me. Let a double portion of thy Spirit be upon me. In other words, you conferred your Spirit upon me in your mantle. How about a double portion? The miracles that Elijah performed that are identified in the record are, are, are not nearly as many, however, as Elisha. Oh, well, no, that wouldn't necessarily follow. The Lord in his uh, wisdom elects uh, at one time to just pour out massive um, a demonstration of miracles and powers and may have a very righteous man right next to him that uh, has a different calling. For example, Isaiah, you don't read of hardly any miracles by him or nor by Jeremiah. Mostly just a warning prophet. Same with Ezekiel. The, the record would rather suggest that Elisha uh, did have the opportunity to perform more miracles than Elijah did, not because he was greater, but he asked that this spirit be with him and he get this double portion to help him in his ministry. Actually, I think that it was a very humble, uh, it was kind of like Solomon when he went and he said, uh, will you just please give me the wisdom to operate these people? I just, I'm just not as great a man as Elijah. I, I need a double portion of the spirit. Anyway, that's a thought, either way. Um, after Elisha had crossed the river, how many were their fellows, how many of these uh, young students, uh, priesthood students in the bushes? About 50 of them over there. And of course, they wanted to go back and help Elijah. They wanted to leave the old gentleman over there alone. And they apparently had to go back in a boat. They didn't get to divide any rivers. And they just went across in a boat and went over there and looked for three days and came back and said we didn't find him. And it would appear from the record that Elisha finally got, took them into his confidence and said he was translated. And immediately these people who lived in this particular vicinity spread the word. Everybody wanted to know where the most famous man in the whole region had gone. And of course, uh, what happened to Elijah? So the secret spreads. This would seem to be the case. You know the definition of a secret. Something you just tell one person at a time. That's the rule for a secret. You must only tell one person at a time. And that way it'll get around the world faster than if you put it in the headlines of the paper. So um, this seems to have happened, at least by the time Elisha had been for a few weeks uh, down at Jericho and had healed the waters there by um, blessing them with the Spirit of the Lord and throwing a little salt in, which some people thought cured the well, which of course would be just the other uh, opposite. It would have corrupted the well. The salt was just a gesture. <clears throat> when that was all done and it got time for him to leave, why well, he's uh, he runs into these teenagers. And you notice the Bible says children, and I pointed out to you that was a mistranslation. It really means youth. And uh, they called him by a dirty name that was like leper, leper. When are you going to get translated? Oh, that was it was such an insult to Elisha's good friend Elijah and to the priesthood and. And the very fact that it was out, this seems to be the setting for the action that he took. And so he turned, and in the name of God, he cursed them. And then these two uh, big mama bears came out of the woods. And um, they went to scratching around in great style. How many of these young fellows were there? Forty-two that got scratched anyway. Anybody get killed? No, it just scared the wits out of them. And they probably want to spread the word up and down. If Elisha comes around, gee, don't get him mad. 
Well, he wasn't a temperamental person. He was a young person, too. He was not old and probably wasn't bald at all. That was uh, an epithet that they used to use for people that they wanted to call uh, uh, diseased, you see. So the, uh, the commentators think that's what these young fellows are really trying to do. They were insulting him in high style, and there was something Elisha figured he didn't have to put up with, and he asked the Lord to do something about it, and the Lord says, well, we can, we can help people be a little more respectful of these things. And so he did. And then he went up to Mount Carmel, and both he and Elijah would go up there, and the place they used to go, if we have it, uh, the right place picked out, it's right up at this end, it isn't over toward the sea, uh, it's right where Elijah went and had his uh, servant go up and see if he could see the cloud coming over the Mediterranean. And it's a high point right here. And the brook that runs into the ocean is uh, right down below. And uh, Jezreel, the city where Jezebel was, is just a little ways away. Just across this little valley there. And uh, so he went up there for his meditation and study and prayers, and finally he went back down to Samaria and maintained his headquarters there. Then he would start circulating around to these various schools of the prophets, to the various congregations. Now in our day, we're highly structured. The church seems not to have been so highly structured at any time in its history since the golden age of the Nephites or the days of the city of Enoch. They used to go to church once a day. Everybody studied the Bible every day, but you did it kind of on your own. But you notice what we do. Uh, the brethren in our generation and dispensation, uh, we attend anywhere from three to five meetings on Sunday, preparation meetings in between. And then we'll have uh, some kind of a meeting uh, during the week in connection with our quorum, uh, presidency or something. Then we have um, uh, a mutual meeting or a Relief Society meeting and so forth. And you'll notice that our meetings run anywhere from uh, three to uh, seven or eight a week. Now, that's what you call a highly structured organization. But you know what we're doing? We're holding about 85% here on the campus, about 85. Never done it so well in the history of the church. And you mustn't be imposed upon. And you know what you can do to balance your studies and your activity. But the ones who are failing spiritually are the ones that, don't, that won't structure with the church. There's great protection in keeping a balance between your activity in the church and your studies and your work, earning a living, and all the things you have to do. And we all went through it too. And when I was newly married back in Washington, I dropped from my scholarship A in law school to a B just to stay active in the church. My buddies who, and then my wife went to work to make up for the scholarship that I was losing. And we sat down and just figured it out that I could not maintain an A in law school and work 14 hours a day in the FBI, go to school two hours every night, then study two hours after that, and be active in the church, uh, and maintain the scholarship level that they were requiring, which was a lot of extra work with the law review, etc. So she said, well, I could make that up if I worked, and, and we didn't, weren't allowed, able to have any kiddies for about three years, so uh, that worked out pretty good. But you've each got to do that. Stay active in the kingdom. Now, the Lord has structured us this high so we could, so that we could average 85% on this campus instead of the church average, you see, of 26 for elders quorums. 26%. It's disgraceful. So, 
If you get weary and tired, rebalance yourself, take inventory, am I doing too much? And I had one of my students come to me this morning, she definitely was doing too much. She's been asked to do many things, she feels the obligation for it, she's doing a terrific job, but something's going to crack, either her studies or her health, and both of them crack simultaneously. So she was smart enough to say, well, you just don't, uh, you just don't do that. The Lord was very upset with Joseph Smith. He kept saying, the Lord kept saying, go, you know, go, got to do this, got to do this, got to do that. Pretty soon Joseph Smith's sick. And he goes back to the Lord and he says, can't do it anymore. I'm sick. The Lord said, well, I never told you to run beyond your strength. Okay. So you, you have to keep that balance too. Anyway, I want you to keep in mind that in those days they were very lightly structured compared to now. You were lucky if you saw one of the presiding priesthood members, you know, uh, once in three months. Elisha might be on circuit and you'd see him. Meanwhile, one of the local brethren will meet you at synagogue on once a week. You're lucky if you're... They just weren't highly structured. And you're out herding sheep anyway and tending olive grove. You're pretty busy. But now we're not so busy, and the Lord knew that Lucifer could capture the majority of this generation if he didn't keep the church highly structured. So believe me, we are structured. I just looked at the priesthood uh, uh, gold book for deacons and teachers and priests, and uh, that's structured. But those who go with it, they've got a good chance of making it. Those who say that's just too much busy work and falter all, they're kind of asking for possibility of Lucifer getting into the chinks. Just something to think about. All right. Um, while he was on circuit, he got down here toward, uh, what's his territory here? Who's occupied down there? Me. He's the Edomites. Who's that? Who's that? What's this area called? What? Transjordan. All of this is Transjordan. This is the Gilead. Yeah. Okay. Well, the Damascus is right up there, and that's part of Syria, etc. Man, the capital of the Ammonites, right over there. Um, anyway, he gets down here, and three big armies have congregated here. But the northern ten tribes, Judah and the Edomites, have already attacked Mesha. Now, the Bible casually refers to this battle, etc., but it's not casual with Mesha. He was about to take all the Moabites and all the Ammonites, and he was going across over the Arnon River, and he was doing great. And then the, uh, um, the king of the northern ten tribes came down, and uh, couldn't defeat him, went home and fell through the lattice window, of course, and, and tried to murder Elijah in the process and died. So his brother then comes down, and he's met with um, uh, the king of uh, the Jews and the king of the Edomites, and they're going to take Misha now. But they get their armies all down there, they're all congregated, and lo and behold, nothing to drink. And you got your animals and your men, everybody's just famished, no water down here. Well, this is the Sodom and Gomorrah era. Uh, this is our epic. This is all down here, I should area. As far as we know, this is where Sodom and Gomorrah were. There's nothing there now but asphalt, but uh, that looks like that's where it used to be. And uh, so they want to know what to do, and uh, so they learn that Elisha is there. And so when these three kings march in on Elisha, is he happy to see uh, Jehoram of the northern ten tribes? Boy, you apostate idolater, sex worshiper, you bad man. <laughs> Who did he respect, though? Who? Jehoshaphat. 
king of the Jews. He said, out of respect for him, he'd be able to help him. They said, we want to know what to do here. We're all ready to go to war, and we're in a real bad situation. All right, he says, I'll see if I can reach the Lord. Now, in order to rise to the threshold where he's spiritually in communication, what did he, what did he ask for? Music. Now, there, there are a number of things. You really have to work to reach that spiritual uh, threshold. Fasting will help. Prayer will do it. Being off by yourself. This is why so many of the prophets go to the top of a mountain or someplace, you know, isolated. They've got to be alone a long time. Read the scriptures, pray, fast, and ra gradually rise to that level where they can break through. And he found he could do it faster with soft music. And, and I, it's helpful for me, too. I find my spirit rising with soft music. Rock, no. Rock just tears me apart. I have to, uh, I have, to have it soft and gentle and not distracting. So um, he was able to get the word, and he said to them, rather uh, unusually, he said, will you go down to this dry wadi where there isn't any water and build the dams. Get ready for the water. Water's coming. Well, that water comes from way up here, up where Petra is, these high mountains down there in such quantity and you've watched it on the Mojave Desert any of you who are familiar with it and you'll have a, a little drainage basin there all of a sudden uh, uh, you, you feel a heavy desert rain coming at a certain season of the year boy and the next thing you know there's a little trickle coming and the next thing you know it, it's climbing and the next thing you know got boulders and mud and it's all sweeping down the Colorado River and you better get out of there if your car's in there it'll go with it 45 minutes later no water, 45 minutes after that, dry sand. That's a wadi. That's what they call a W-A-D-I over in the desert country. Now, some of these rivers would run as much as five months or so, but they all dry up eventually. That's why they gave the river one name and the wadi another, because the river disappears. They wanted to say, when the river is running, then they'd give it a name. And they'd say the river uh, Layman is running, you see. The, the, go to the river Layman, that means it's running. Otherwise, you just have to go to the uh, Valley Lemuel, you see, because there's no river. That's why they would distinguish between them. Good thing Joseph Smith guessed that just right. Because after they got to studying it, why well, they found out the way the Book of Mormon describes it is exactly the way it was. That's the way they do it. So they, the, the water came down all right, but they, when Misha got up the next morning, for some reason that's hard to explain, he thought that they were all fighting. They were just getting up getting breakfast. He thought they were all fighting. He thought there was blood in the water, and they were drowning each other and killing each other, and they're just watering their flocks. Everybody's so happy there's water and so forth, and they're all milling around. So he just stormed it without any uh, uh, careful preparation. And, of course, he, he really was badly beaten. So he retreated and retreated and retreated and finally went to this one um, hideout, which really is difficult to hit, Kirak of today, and uh, got up there and they besieged him and right out in front of all those armies, he did what? Sacrificed his eldest son. Did his eldest son protest? No, he said for the, to our God, if he requires my life, I give it freely. And that was, that just really ground into the spirits of the armies that were watching and they just went home oh if it means that much to him let's go home so it broke up the whole thing and of course uh, misha being an idolater did he think it was a success yeah his god his great god had done it now elisha we should say that by the way that misha wrote this all up on a stone as i mentioned to you earlier in the last chapter and uh, we, we got it now under some rather remarkable circumstances, but anyway, it was put together finally, and we kind of got his story. And incidentally, uh, Dr. Mayer of um, uh, Michigan State, 
an expert on ancient history, says in his texts that uh, anybody who doesn't know his Bible doesn't know the best source material that, they, that ancient historians can have. You see, we kind of apologize sometimes, even in our own academic circles, you see. They try to distinguish ancient history, quote, unquote, from Bible history, quote, unquote. And uh, if I may be allowed a humble opinion, that any time you study ancient history, Dr. Mayer is right, any Mormon that teaches ancient history without integrating with the, with the Bible is doing a great injustice both to his religion and to history. They belong together. No matter what the world says. Dr. Mayer says, this is the book that's turning out to be the best authority. Everything archaeologically fits this book. This is the best contem contemporaneously recorded information that we have of ancient times. And for anybody to ignore what's in this book uh, makes him uh, illiterate in this field. And that seems so good to see a professional historian really banging. And, uh, I said, amen, 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 just all the way through, because that's the way I always felt. Now, we just have a few lists of the miracles, and I want to go over them very quickly, make sure everybody keeps them in mind. We have the miracle of the oil, where a little bit of oil is poured into a great number of vessels, and it multiplies itself. This is a very uh, old priesthood procedure. Feeding 5,000, feeding 100, having meal uh, over the uh, centuries for, or excuse me, over the years of the famine that Elijah did, you remember? He told the woman she wouldn't lack for meal. It multiplied itself. And this is a very simple device once you understand the principle of intelligence in matter. Now, I need to give you a reference. Will you put it in about right here in your book on page 400? Write it up in the top of the column somewhere. This is one of the finest uh, references on intelligence in matter that you... Uh, can have to catch the vision that the early brethren had that the church has since lost and that we're trying to resurrect again. Brigham Young says that, quote, the riches of eternity, unquote, I mean, he, the, we constantly hear about the getting, let's get the riches of eternity, all right? This is what they are. Brigham Young says getting the riches of eternity is acquiring the power of the priesthood over the elements so that they can be commanded like Elisha did. Now those are the riches of eternity. Not, they're not given to all the priesthood, they're only given occasionally, but those are the riches of eternity because that's the way God does it. He speaks to the intelligences and they respond. Now that's Journal of Discourses, J.D. 1, Volume 1, page 170. 170. So when you hear Brigham Young talking about the riches of eternity, He's talking about this marvelous power of being able to say to a mountain to move and it'll move. And being able to say to the wind, stop blowing, you're making the waves too high. It's rocking the boat and they stop. Or being able to say to wine, be water. Or to water, be wine. Or to meal, multiply yourself. Oil, multiply yourself. Okay, now this was very often discussed in the early days of the church. But for some reason or another, it became a neglected doctrine. The next thing we knew, we couldn't understand a lot of other doctrines because we forgot that one. Stop talking about it. Then there was the poisonous gorge. Was he able to cure the poison? Were they able to eat them? Uh, we have the same thing with snakes, where they bite a person, where the, uh, the venom is neutralized. And then he had feeding of a multitude of 100 men with 20 of those little biscuits that they have over there. And uh, then we had the, uh, the curing of leprosy. 
can he inflict leprosy as well as cure it? To Moses, the Lord says, thrust thy hand into thy bosom. And he did, and it came out dripping leprosy. And of course, undoubtedly scared Moses terribly. And the Lord said, well, all right, put it back. And so he put it back. And it came back, came out beautiful pink flesh again. So grateful for that. And when I was in India a couple of years ago, uh, they have one special place where people go to die because if they can die at that particular place, they can go to nirvana without ever having to come back to the earth and suffer again under the reincarnation concept. So here are all these thousands of sick people waiting to die. And down at the far end, their bodies being burned and those who are too poor being wrapped and just thrown into the Ganges to be washed out to the river. It's a, it's a, a ghoulish affair. But here are the lepers, the saddest of all. And the flesh uh, with this particular disease uh, just uh, falls away and leaves the bone. So the bone detaches, you see, as the muscle and nerve tissue dies and there's terrible inflammation and pain connected with it, the knuckles fall off. And great abscesses grow on the face as the flesh is eaten away. And then it turns white in its advanced stage. In the beginning it's inflamed and red, and then it turns a, a gray, grayish color, which is just actually a, a decaying, deteriorating flesh. So you see these poor people, you see in their hands are like this, no, no knuckles on them, or the hand will all be practically gone. And they wrap themselves in cloths to keep the ugliness of it away. It doesn't do any good. And there's no cure for it, known as far as I've ever heard. Anyway, it was real sad. And I thought of some of these things as I watched those lepers there on the banks of the Ganges in India waiting to die. And I gave you an example of uh, um, what a terrible thing it was to die of leprosy and uh, to have leprosy. This man in India um, requested the commandant, the British commandant, to let his people bury him alive, which was their custom when you got leprosy. And of course, that was against British law, so he requested that that be permitted. Just give you an idea what a terrible disease this was. So Naaman was really motivated when he was trying to find a cure. And when this captured Israelite girl said, well, we do have somebody that can do it, they cure, they, they have miracles down among the Israelites. Why? He went with that chariot loaded with good things, didn't he? Uh, several hundred pounds of gifts to whoever could cure him but he followed protocol who did he approach the king and um, Jehoram uh, he got he got the letter that you, you, a leper doesn't come in before the king he doesn't come in before anybody he just stays out sends a message he sends in the message and says I, I, I want to be I want to be healed please Jehoram says am I God to kill and to make alive, this man descended me to recover him from leprosy. It's terrible. Oh, I'll bet he's just trying to have a, 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 an excuse to get a fight going. So off comes his robes, here's the king, and to show his great anguish to the members of his court. And he's ripping his robe up and he's just trying to get a fight going. That's what he's doing. He throws a regular tantrum. So somebody runs up the hill and says, uh, Elisha, there's somebody who wants to be cured of leprosy and the king's throwing a fit. So Elisha said, well, send a message quickly. Wherefore hast thou rent thy clothes, Jehoram? Let him come now to me. He shall know that there's a prophet in Israel. We, we do these things. You know. Don't get excited. You're just a king. You can't do it, but we can do it. <laughs> so Naaman went to his house, and of course he didn't go in, and once again he got the message to go and bathe in that dirty Jordan River. Now it looks very much like the Colorado. It's just loaded with silt. 
And uh, if you scoop up a bucket of water of the Colorado, if you've ever done it, uh, you can't, it's not easy to drink it. I mean, you just drink dirt until you let it sit for about an hour and a half or two hours. And then you'll get about that much mud in the bottom and, and you can drink what's up on top. Well, he had beautiful rivers at home. I've seen them. They flow right down out of the Antilebanese Mountains. And they flow right down through the city of Damascus. And they're beautiful, clear water. Got nice little fish running in through them. You can see why he was insulted. But as he went by the river, he had to go no matter which route he took. He could cross the river here at the fords. He could cross here, or he could cross here, or he could go on up above. But he came right close to the river in either case. And his servant said, would you just try it? Well, he says, okay, this is superstition. Nothing will come of this. This is ridiculous. But anyway, he says he's willing to try it. He goes out in the water, goes down seven times, comes up clean. Oh, the feeling of this, the relief of it. And so he went storming back as hard as he could to Elisha and, of course, tried to give him a gift. And now Elisha said, this thing's worth from the Lord. No, no gifts. But then all of you remember the story. Ah, his servant comes running after him. He saw all of that good gold and, or good silver disappearing with the chariot. So he ran and he had a big lie to tell. And he said that two of the, uh, two of the prophets apprentices had just come and they really did need some clothes and little sustenance. A couple of talents worth would be enough, that'd be nice. And 116 pounds worth of silver, well, um, he carted it off, put it in a tower, and then he went in before Elisha, you know, like nothing had happened. I think this is real good. Whence comest thou, uh, Gehazi? Oh, he said, uh, thy servant went nowhither. And Elisha said, Did not my vision go with you when the man turned again from his chariot to meet thee? Is it a time to receive money and to receive garments and olive yards and vineyards and sheep and oxen and men servants and maid servants, Gehazi? Then he knew he was in trouble. And the next thing he knew it was the leprosy, therefore, of Naaman shall cleave unto thee and unto thy seed forever. This was like saying you have Naaman's silver, now you can have his leprosy. The terrible disease had passed from Naaman's house to his, and Gehazi did, uh, Gehazi did not have to wait long to see whether the prophecy would be literally fulfilled. It says he went out from his presence a leper as white as snow. And that's the very advanced stages of the leprosy. Then you have the axe violating the principles of gravitation and coming up to the surface where it could be easily obtained, the axe head. And um, then you have that fantastic situation where the word goes to the king of Damascus that the reason he hasn't been able to kidnap and hold the king of, the Jew, uh, of Israel for ransom is because they have a prophet who can even read your thoughts in the bedroom. And the king of Damascus says, now that's got to stop. And we got to get that fellow. They sent a whole army right down into the jurisdiction of Israel to capture him. And uh, good old Elisha went right to the captain of the, of the army and told him he'd be glad to lead him to where he wanted to go. Where did they end up? Right in the heart of the capital of the Israelites with the Israelite king jumping up and down. Kill him, kill him, we got him. And Elisha saying, no, we have got him, but feed him. And we sent him home. Feed them. Yeah, feed them. Send them home. So they did. Okay, chapter 18. <laughs>